Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sailorville Church and to our series, Emmanuel, God with us. Beautiful music, um, beautiful season. And um, I got to tell you, after the last service, I had somebody chase me down. We've been praying with several people moved by, um, you know, just by the atmosphere and the message. And, and a, a man ran up to me and said, Pastor. And I said, yes. I was thinking, you know, he was moved. He wanted me to pray with him. He said, that voice of Frederick Sandberg, it's amazing. <laughs> that was the Swede you heard uh, reading the rendition of uh, Psalm 6. Thank you, Frederick, for reading the scripture. Let's thank Frederick for reading the scripture for us today. Well, it's Christmas time, and that brings joy to many hearts and tears to many eyes. Some of you, as you think about this time of year, it's, it's it, it, the thought of loss, loss of love, or love never experienced, the death of a spouse, perhaps, or a parent, or a friend, or a child. I think I've prayed for almost all of these situations in a special way with individuals between the services today. Some of you have experienced multiple miscarriages and the wonder of what might be if God had made it different. Some of you are struggling about broken relationships in the past. Maybe you got divorced, maybe you got remarried, and, and you had some wonderful Christmases in the past, but it's kind of awkward and weird, and you're almost, it's off limits to even think about it. Just weird. Some of you have crushed expectations and some of you have experienced betrayal. And then there are a number of you who experience this time of year in a very particular way, kind of a malaise that comes over your mind, it gets into your heart. It's a mental kind of a thing, and it's very difficult to, to understand, much less do anything about. It's a gloom that's just there. I, I want all of you to know today that know Jesus, and I don't assume that all of you do, but to those of you who do, the captain of your soul is the capturer of your tears. When we left off in our study, our Lord Jesus, our King and Savior has come. Uh, the shepherds have already started to spread the word. But then again, who listens to shepherds? But when a large contingent of Easterners, known as the Magi, with a large company around them, showed up in Jerusalem, that stirred up everybody, including the king himself, Herod, the wicked Herod himself. When they asked about who the one to be born king of the Jews, he went to his scribes, his knowledgeable, these lawyers, these, the intelligentsia, the, the great students of the Bible, and they gave him the right answer in Bethlehem of Judea. Right answer, wrong application. Uh, these scribes, I call them James 2.22ers, the hearers, not doers. If they'd have been doers, they'd have been off for Bethlehem, just six miles away. But they didn't. The Magi went. They found the king, and they worshipped him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Little did they know that what they gave him would be basically the, um, the travel monies for their next trip. 
And Herod, meanwhile, was waiting for them to return so he could put forth his plot to kill. Literally, the word destroy, as we'll see here in a minute, means to utterly destroy the king. However, God intervened, told the Magi, don't, bad idea, don't go out that, go this way. And he had to warn somebody else, and that was Joseph, where we left off, verse 13, here we go. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, take, arise rather, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. I'll say it again. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to Greek utterly and completely annihilate or destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, that is Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Now why would he tell him to go to Egypt? And by the way, do you see the word flee there? See the word? That's the word fugo. That's the Greek word fugo. It sounds like fugitive. That's where we get our word fugitive. And that's exactly what it means. The Lord Jesus has come into the world and he's no sooner here and he's a fugitive. His family's on the run. But why Egypt? Now there were practical reasons you should know that Egypt, it wasn't like they just went into another wilderness like the children of Israel wandering for 40 years. No, uh, during the intertestamental period, that 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, uh, the Greeks ruled the world before the Romans did, and Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt and had even built a city to himself called Alexandria, and there he had a whole section given all over to the Jews. By 40 AD, there were a million of them living there. A million! So there were hundreds of thousands of Jews already living there. Joseph and Mary were going down there not to you know, wander around in the wilderness. They had a place probably to reside with their fellow countrymen. But the real reason this took place was to fulfill prophecy. And you saw that at the end of verse 15. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. Now Hosea was referring to Israel. Which by the way, Israel is a picture of, of Christ. If you were with us in our study of Exodus, you'll recall that in chapter 4 and verse 22, God calls Israel my son, my firstborn son. Remember that? And so he is, they actually become a picture of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus would have to go to Egypt before he could fulfill the prophecy of coming out of Egypt. And there you go. But what I want you to do, and I repeated it just because you wanted me to, a little line there in verse 13. Look at it again. God, speaking to Joseph by way of the angel, says, I'm sending you to Egypt and then watch this, remain there until I tell you. You might want to underline that because hardcore planners and control freaks hate statements like that. How long would he be there? Two months? Two years? Three? We don't really know. You know, there's scholars, and God bless them for all of their study, have tried to ascertain, was Jesus born in 6 B.C.? Because Herod died in 4 B.C. And they're wrestling with it. We don't really know for sure, and the Bible doesn't tell us definitively the time stamp here. Obviously, God doesn't want us this to be our focal point. 
As I said, if you're a control freak or a hardcore planner, you don't like this. This, this, this idea of, you know, I'm going to send you down to Egypt and you stay there until I tell you otherwise. But God doesn't usually tell us how long our waits will be, does he? Does he? Are you waiting right now? And what are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the gloom to just sort of lift, the fog to lift, the sun to come out again? Are you waiting for your health to turn? Are you waiting for a wife or a husband? Waiting for a child? Waiting for a job promotion? What are you waiting for? Listen carefully. If your times are in his hands, your schedule should be too. What do you think of that? So, what do you do about that? You offer them to God. That's like everything else. You offer it to God. That schedule of yours that you're so hell-bent on getting done. God could have told Joseph exactly how long he'd be away from home, but he didn't. Why? Why is that? Why doesn't he do that for you and for me? Because your obedience is more important than your plans. Do you believe that? Your obedience is more important than your plans. So act on what you know. I mean, you don't, you don't really see, you don't see Joseph equivocate, equivocating. He's not arguing with God. Gets up right away at night even. That just shows you how desperate the situation was. And they bug out to Egypt. This is a reminder of what the writer of Proverbs says, 16 verse 9. We, man plans in his heart. God directs his what? His steps, right? You make your plans and God will make your path. That's the fact. You make your plans. God's not against you planning. Don't just, just don't marry yourself to him. God will make your path. So trust him to that end. That's what God is calling us to do. So Joseph obeys by night. And he's like a fugitive, grabs his family and off they go. Now, Jesus is anywhere from a few months to a couple of years old. Again, I just don't get bogged down in these things. This is all in accordance with the whole time, the, you know, the magi seeing the star and this and that. But note this, this is interesting to me. God, who has divinely intervened with the magi and divinely intervened with Joseph, doesn't do anything divine here. And think about this. He, with, with Mary and Joseph, instead of just doing something miraculous, he actually tells them to do something. Run for your lives! That's what he's telling them. There's no chariot like Elijah sweeping down there. How cool would that have been? Or how about just rapturing him like he did Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8 could have done that. Or he could have said to Joseph, fear not, Joseph, son of David, of those who are trying to kill my son, I'll take care of him and protect you while you live here in Bethlehem. No, didn't do any of that. Is that what I sounded like? <laughs> wow. Out of the mouth of babes. 
No, instead of doing anything divine, it rather, it's just another long, hard, and tearful journey. I mean, you can just hear Mary. What? Again? Where are we going? Are you serious? Egypt? That was like 70 to 80 miles away, plus another 40 or 50 to get to the area of, or, or at least to get to Alexandria, if that's where they were heading. As Joseph and Mary and Jesus make their way on an undesirable trip to an unfamiliar country for an undetermined amount of time. Oh my goodness. In case you haven't noticed, most of life isn't made up of of low-hanging and moving stars and angelic visits. Can I get a witness on that? And oftentimes that translates into worries and fears and tears. So here is Herod. All of his plans have been messed up by God. And he's a picture of Satan, so he's about to go apoplectic here. He just goes nuts, and we pick it up in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that's chapter 31, verse 15, for those of you marking your Bibles. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, Herod was, as we learned last week from our brother Jason, was a maniacal megalomaniac. He was a murderer. History tells us he killed at least one wife and knocked off two of his very own flesh and blood sons just because he suspected something in him. When, when Herod got nervous, everybody got nervous. But think about this. Would you agree this is a tragedy that occurred? Amen killing all those babies, two years old and younger, all around, Bethlehem all around. Did you know there's not one historical record in the annals of history outside of this book of that occurring? Not one. Josephus, who lived in the first century, who would surely have recorded it if he thought it important, would have done so, but didn't. Why? You know what the answer is? Because it wasn't enough to make the headlines. Herod was always murdering people. If I, uh, Josh Farver and Jenny Farver are are missionaries to Togo, West Africa. I was just there a couple of months ago. Had a great time with them. They're back on furlough. They'll be living here, you know, right in our mission house. And they just got back early this morning. And um, uh, so I tell you that because you have heard what happened in, and, uh, and the country just north of him, did you not? And Burkina Faso, that's the country just north of Togo. Did you hear what happened in the churches? That you, you, you didn't hear that one? Just last week, it just happened. You, you don't know this? Oh, of course you don't. It's not in your backyard. 
It's in his. Radical Muslims went into a Christian church and slaughtered 13 people, all of them dead. It's in the news. You've got you you to peel back the papers, like page 18, bottom corner. How many died at 9-11, 18 years ago? Oh, I know. Oh, about, about 3,000. You know that. That was a headliner. Well, there's your answer. There's your answer as to why there isn't any record of what happened in Bethlehem. It was nothing. There was nothing for Herod to do that. On top of this, and you might as well get this out of your mind, it wasn't like hundreds of babies died. That would have made headlines. Probably a dozen, maybe two. Jerusalem was an itsy, or Bethlehem was an itsy-bitsy, tiny suburb. Very, very small. And the outlying areas, there's nothing much there, too. I'm, I'm, the experts, historians, really think that there are probably maybe 20 babies. I'm, I'm not belittling the death of 20 babies. And you can see in the scripture what this caused. In fact, in Revelation 12, there is this depiction of Satan himself like this, like a violent a carnivorous animal getting ready to devour the Christ child when he's born into the world. But God saves, you know, whisks him away, and, and God saved the Christ child here by sending his family down to Egypt, but the collateral damage was off the charts. Verse 18 says, the mothers of those that died, whether it was 12 or 20 or 30 or 50, the, the mothers are described as Rachel weeping. Rachel is like the mother of the Jews. And remember, she had a problem getting pregnant as well, so she's weeping. And it all happens in Ramah, a city exists, a little town about five miles north of Jerusalem. The word means high place or large, uplifted, kind of vaulted place. And it was the actual location whenever Israel was destroyed or if they were conquered by someone else, that would be the place where they would be deported. Families would be deported, separated, you can just imagine the crying and screaming that went on in Ramah. And so it becomes a fitting location to describe the crushing loss of these children. That's a terrible place to end a sermon, isn't it? I really want to spend the balance of my time with you talking to your hearts about your tears. Christmas time is family time, right? And during which we enjoy our families that are coming, and sometimes we tear up with those who can't come. And some can't come because they're simply no longer in this world to come. They're not here, but their memories are here, right? I mean, the cookies that she made, they're still there, but she's not. The place where he sat, the chair might even be there. But he's not in it anymore. The crib where she lie. But there's no one in there. I remember one Christmas, one of my sons gave his mother, uh, she really wanted an, uh, a new angel on top of the tree, and we, he gave her this really cool angel, and he was so proud, and she was so delighted, we even snapped a picture of it. I, I think we still have the angel. Memories conjure up all kinds of emotions, don't they? Hard, tender, some of them are funny, right? 
People that are gone, we laugh sometimes. The one thing almost all of these memories do is they, uh, they all sort of invoke tears. Tears. Christmas time, for all its beauty and joy, is a tearful time for some of you, maybe lots of you. And I'm praying this morning that God would take this famous story and dab the tears from your eyes until the day when he wipes them completely from your life. I know something about tears. They would come to me by an unanticipated intervention from God. By the way, speaking of famous, um, has anybody ever heard the expression, everybody gets 15 minutes of fame? You ever heard that expression? Andy Warhol said that years ago. I don't think that's true. I got about 15 seconds. It happened back in 1995. 1995. April, to be exact. April of 1995. I was um, sitting in my office, and, and I always listened to Paul Harvey. Remember Paul Harvey? Paul Harvey. Good day, right? And now you know the rest of the story. You remember him. 24 plus million people listened to Paul Harvey every noon for 58 years. He died just a week. He, he, he actually did the noon broadcast a week before he died. I mean, every preacher should listen to Paul Harvey, I think, because his diction is perfect. His punctuation, his uh, enunciation, his power of the pause, there's nothing like it. Paul Harvey had it all. He was the whole package. I was listening to him one day in April 1995. As he was going through the news, he described um, a, a horrible, a horrible uh, abuse situation. I remember being shocked myself listening to even the great Paul Harvey describe it. But, you know, I went back to work. The very next day, and Paul Harvey would do this. He would say, he'd be in the news. In the middle of his news, he'd say, from the mailbag, dear Har Paul Harvey News. And he would pull out a letter that somebody had written. He'd read it. And uh, a woman had written him from the day before, so horrified by the way he just reported the news on this violent act. She said, Mr. Harvey, how can you give, how can you, how can you report such a thing without tears, without shedding tears? And he was reading this, and he paused, and he said, ma'am, if I cried every time I felt like it, you'd hear no news. I was so whammied by that statement. I, I, I reached and grabbed a piece of paper, I scribbled something out, a little quick note, sent it to Paul Harvey. I just sent it to him. Thought nothing of it. April, 1995. And... The very next week, the very next week, Timothy McVeigh performed the most horrific domestic terrorist act in the history of our country. When he drove a car up to the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, blew it up, and instantly 168 people were killed. Hundreds others were injured and mutilated. It was a horrific scene. And in 1995, April of 1995, the entire nation was looking at this because at the time, we thought maybe it was a Muslim attack. We didn't know. Harvey was describing the chaos and the carnage 
in only ways that Paul Harvey could do. And then he reached into his mailbag. And imagine my surprise when he read this. In the mailbag, dear Paul Harvey News, last week you said that if you cried every time you felt like it, there would be no room in your broadcast for words. Mr. Harvey, our nation could use a broadcast like that, just tears. Pastor Pat Nimmers, Clarion, Iowa. I couldn't believe it. There's my 15 seconds of fame. Just tears. Timestamp, April 1995. If you knew me then, I'd been a pastor for several years. But I would not consider myself a very tearful individual. And three months later, the tears would begin to flow. And they've never stopped. God had a plan. He knew that I needed, I needed, I needed to have more compassion and empathy. And so he did it the only way he knew how. I guess he could have done it another way. But Christmas that year would be a tearful one for the Nimmer's home and many to come. Just the other day, a friend of mine, a member of this church, texted me because his wife had just been diagnosed with cancer, an inoperable tumor, and was told again just the other day that she is not long for this world. And he just got the diagnosis, and he texted me, and here's the end of his text, can't talk right now. What was he saying? Just tears. We tear, and we tear up for a lot of reasons, don't we? The science behind tears is not exact, to be honest. It won't surprise anybody that women cry five times, as mo- five times more than men. Oh, by the way, men have bigger tear ducts, and your tear duct act like a, like a pipe, like a pipeline to your nasal cavity. That's why when you cry, you always got to blow your nose. Just thought you'd like to know that. <laughs> Women have tinier tear ducts. That's why they overflow in their cheeks and you cry. We all know that a good cry, and there is such a thing, does relieve stress, but this isn't about why we cry. It's about what to do with your tears. That's what this is about. What to do with your tears. Because after the angels in the sky had returned to heaven, after the shepherds had returned to their home in the fields, and after the magi had returned east to their homes in wonder and joy and worship, many other mothers Daughters of Rachel went home weeping. Their babies are gone. And their dads were weeping and their brothers and sisters were weeping. Inconsolably, Christmas. Christmas time would be a tearful time for years to come. God never leaves those of us who know him. 
But he also never promises you and me a pain-free, heartbreak-free, worry-free, burden-free, death-free life. So lover of Jesus, take heart today. Take heart. Jesus knows your plight. He knows your plight. The psalmist said, you have known me in my affliction, Psalm 31, and he knows yours. Jesus hears your pleas. Oh, you who hear prayer, the psalmist wrote, to you all the ends of the earth will come. God hears your pleas, even though sometimes, oft times, he bears long with you. He knows your plight, he hears your pleas, and he feels your pain. Remember, this is the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief. He knows your pain, he feels your pain. We have a sympathetic Savior. Emmanuel is sympathetic. He is sanctifying your person. No matter what you're going through, it is not a purposeless thing. Whether it's the malaise of the mind, the the pain of the body, or the heart-wrenching stress of a relationship that's broken somewhere, or something different, God has purpose in your pain, and he is sanctifying you. He is sanctifying your person. And you can imagine how this pastor was encouraged just the other day when another woman in our church whose husband is struggling with that malaise, that mental condition, that gloom that nobody can quite put their finger on, except for God, and she said to me, but pastor, God is sanctifying me. And finally, he's preparing you for perfection. (laughs) Isn't he, though? I mean, the problem is so much, we live in this Western world, and we just put so many eggs in this basket. That is wrong! God is preparing us for another world. And if you're suffering, no matter what it is, if your suffering does nothing else but point you heavenward, heaven came down as we sang, you'll get to go to heaven when you die. And if all your suffering does is point you back to God, that's a win. That's a win. So the other day, this same brother of mine, godly guy, uh, he's just, you know, everything's just swirling for him, and you can imagine. His wife's been given so long to live, and, and uh, so he texted me. He said, he texted me this question. He said, hey, he said, how, how did you lose your wife? Now, that was, that's all it was. How did you lose? That's, that's the whole text right there. And uh, I hate that word, lose. I hate it. And I didn't want to be a smart aleck, but I started the text by saying, now, I, I, I started by saying, um, have you really lost something when you know where it is? And as soon as I text, I sent that text, I thought of a story. It happened about 10 years ago. Humorous story. I was in Israel where a bunch of people from the church were traveling from, I think, Jerusalem. We're going down toward the Dead Sea. We're about a half hour out. And my good friend, Tom Kimberly, who's now, who's with another church now, he's right across from me. Tom, suddenly it dawned on him that he left his billfold and everything for the trip in a safe back in the hotel that we'd left. And he's like, oh, and he's talking to the driver, he's talking to the guide, and I can hear this, and, it's get, and all this information started to filter into the back of the bus. 
And all of a sudden, I hear somebody in the back answering somebody else, Tom lost his billfold. And I mean, you had to be there. But best I, I could do, Tom was like this. He's in the front of the bus. He turns around. He's irritated now. He turns around. He goes, I have not lost my billfold. I know exactly where it's at. And we all got a hoot out of that. But his point was valid. Just because he was not in possession of his billfold did not mean that he'd lost it. He knew exactly where it was at. And similarly, I said to my friend, I'd not lost my wife. I knew exactly where she was at. She too was in a safe. The safest place one could ever leave a loved one. Amen? On the other hand, the word lost is an appropriate word for some of you who are lost. The word lost belongs to those of you who are lost. And when you die in your sins, you will be lost forever. Lost, lost, lost. Unless Jesus Christ comes into your life and saves you. And some of you are thinking, yeah, but why do I have to go through this suffering? Why do I have to go through this difficulty? Why do I have to go through this malaise? Why do I have to go through this temptation and struggle? Well, you at least got to give Jesus this much. He took his own medicine when he came into this world and took upon all of those things of yours and then died for you. This is the reason why Paul said to the Thessalonians, we don't, you know, it's, it's not like we don't have any hope. We don't sorrow like people who have no hope. That is believers. If you're not a believer, you just sorrow because you have no hope. Place your faith in the one who will give you salvation and hope, the Lord Jesus. Now, to you who are children of God, true followers of Jesus, what do you do with your tears? The answer might be to talk to them. Talk to them. There's a famous psalm, Psalm 126, talks about those who go forth in tears, weeping, you know, bearing seed. They'll bring forth the harvest. Remember that? John Piper, nearly 30 years ago, wrote about this, and it's, these words are worth their literal weight in gold. So listen up. Piper writes, there's nothing sad about sowing seed. It takes no more work than reaping. The days can be beautiful. There can be great hope of harvest. Yet the psalm speaks of sowing in tears. It says that someone goes forth weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. So why are they weeping, Piper asked. I think the reason is not that sowing is sad or that sowing is hard. I think the reason has nothing to do with sowing. Sowing is simply the work that has to be done even when there are things in life that make us cry. The crops won't wait until we finish. The, I mean, the crops won't wait while we finish our grief or solve all our problems. If we're going to eat next winter, we must get out in the field and sow the seed while we are crying or not. 
If you do that, the promise of the psalm is that you will reap with shouts of joy. So here's the reason, Piper finishes. Here's the lesson. When there are simple, straightforward jobs to be done, and you are full of sadness, and tears are flowing easily, go ahead and do the jobs with tears. Be realistic. Say to your tears, tears? I feel you. You make me want to quit life. But there is a field to be sown, dishes to be washed, car to be fixed, sermon to be written. Then say on the basis of God's word, tears, I know that you will not stay forever. The very fact that I just do my work, tears and all, will in the end bring a harvest of blessing. So go ahead and flow if you must. But I believe, I do not yet see or feel it fully. I believe that the simple work of my sowing will bring sheaves of harvest and you tears will be turned to joy. So do you have tears? I'm sure you do. And what are they related to? I'm sure you know. When the Apostle John began his description of heaven in Revelation 21 and all of its glory, he first had to expunge it in our own minds of what it will not have anymore. No more pain, no more sickness, no more death. But there's a beautiful expression in Revelation 21 when he says, God will wipe away every tear. Every tear. Every tear gone. Lift up your chin, child of God. God holds your tears presently in his own bottle and the captain of your soul is the capturer of your tears. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this Christmas season and all of its admixture of joy and sorrow and laughter and tears. God, I pray for everyone in this room right now, regardless of what they are experiencing, and particularly for those who are hurting this Christmas season over some crushing loss, some difficult memory, some impending situation that seems almost disastrous, and maybe it is in this world. I ask, Lord, that you would dab their tears until the day you wipe them all away. God, I pray for those who are in this room who have no hope right now, their tears will last forever until they place their faith in Jesus. And if that's you, dear friend, believe in the one who wept for you, took his own medicine on the cross, died for your sins. And we love you, O captain of our souls and capturer of our tears.
Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.